0: This is Brain
1: Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Today's episode was brought to you by Audible.com. For a free 30-day trial of their service, head on over to audiblepodcast.com brainmatters brain matters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina.
2: And I'm Matt Davis. Welcome to 2016.
1: Welcome to the new year, everybody. Even Thanks. though
2: it's about two weeks into the new year. Yeah, we're, we're,
1: you know, but it's still fresh in everyone's mind, I hope. Yeah,
2: we run on Brain Matters time at this podcast. Which is
1: coming, we're going to be on a tighter schedule. We're already sticking to that somewhat.
2: Are we? Yeah, not we're, too bad. We're going to have a little bit more of a regular release schedule, is that what
1: That's what I'm alluding to, yes. Okay, good. Yeah, so we expect great episodes.
2: I mean they're all great. They're all fantastic, definitely. Yeah,
1: yeah thanks for thanks for sticking around into the new year, listeners. Uh, and we cannot stress this enough. Tell everyone about the show. <laughs>
2: Yeah, just you know, mention it to friends, neighbors, family, strangers, coworkers.
1: We hope that you learned something last year or you or at least get to meet some interesting scientists. If yeah. if that if that meant anything to you, even a little bit, just let us know. You can even just send us a message on Twitter, on Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate all this. Yeah, those.
2: we love hearing from you guys. So yeah, we
1: we really appreciate all that. So thank you guys for listening. Uh hey Matt, I I need you to kind of eh, you're, what? you looked very unfocused right there.
2: Sorry sorry I was just daydreaming a little bit. Just you're, you're yeah.
1: daydreaming. Okay uh yeah um I I need you to try really hard to uh, to All focus right. your attention. Mm, and
2: I'm focused.
1: Cool. Okay. Yeah. Does that feel different than what you just felt before?
2: It certainly does. Feels like something shifted.
1: Okay. Good. That that shift that you just felt. That, in a very general sense, you swapped your brain state from a very unfocused, very kind of rude to be honest. But um, you know.
2: You were rambling. Let's be let's be fair.
1: <laughs> you shifted from that state into a much more active, attentive state. That is a what? shifting from one brain state to another.
2: Um, what, what are you talking about, brain states? Yeah. Okay. What's up with that?
1: It is the idea that your brain has sort of global activity changes when it moves from a behavioral state such as inattentiveness to being attentive. So the question is, how does the brain actually swap from one state to another? What are the mechanisms that allow that
2: kind of transfer? And presumably the person you talk to today studies this topic. You got it, buddy. So who is it? Who'd you talk to? Okay, so I talked to Dr. Yang
1: Dan, a professor at UC Berkeley and who is also a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. And Dr. Dan has been studying... How do brains swap from one state to another? And and particularly, she's been focused on sleep. So sleep being a very particular kind of brain state, she has been hunting around for what are the mechanisms that could actually trigger an animal to sort of enter a sleep state.
2: So sort of trying to find like an
1: on and off switch? That's exactly the idea. Uh, And we'll get a little bit into it in the interview. But sleep is actually maybe not as sort of passive as we'd once thought. It's not really just turning off the brain globally. It's more of a turning on a sleep circuit. Fantastic. Is that the only thing that you guys talked about? So there's, we're going to actually talk a little bit about her history because she's actually done a big change in careers going from initially studying how timing of activity in the brain, especially in the visual system relays to information transfer. and then she made a big leap to then move into brain states. Uh, it's very interesting when scientists make a leap from one research avenue to another and actually in the interview you'll you'll be able to make sort of make the logical tie
2: as to how she did that. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Can Ooh. we get to the interview? We absolutely can. Uh, what do we need to do first? One big thing stay awake first of all yes
1: and then perk up them cochlea.
2: Sounds great.
0: So I'm from Beijing. Uh, I was born there. Okay. Um, my dad is a nuclear physicist. Um, my mom is, um, I guess you you would call her linguist, right? So she studies uh, ancient Chinese language. So it turns out that Chinese language actually changed uh, about a hundred years ago, right? Okay. So an ancient form and then the modern form, so mm-hmm. she studies the, uh, the ancient form.
1: So is she an academic or does she... Yeah,
0: so they both work in research institutes. And right? Okay.
1: Did they encourage that when you were growing up or did they let you explore whatever?
0: Uh, they probably encouraged... Although I, I spent a lot of time with my dad um, okay. because my mom was actually sent to work in a farm. <laughs> that oh, was yeah. during the Cultural Revolution, right? Okay. So she was, um, she was sent away. So, you know, I think the one thing that really influenced me was early education. So my dad would take me out for a walk after dinner and he would actually always bring a piece of chalk and, um, he taught me math, actually. Yeah. <laughs> on this after dinner walk, right? So really? I, I, I yeah. learned pretty much all the math that I would learn in elementary school before I even went to school.
1: Oh, you were way advanced then. Yeah. I was
0: way advanced, right? But in school, I was a little bored because yeah. I knew all that
1: stuff. <laughs> did you guys do it on like, on the, did you, would you write on the street or something like that in chalk? And, yeah, yeah. Okay. School is maybe boring for you, but did you develop any kind of interest in science at that point in time? Or...
0: It's hard to say, but I, I kind of remember ever since I could remember things, right? I remember this idea that I wanted to be Madame Curie, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know how that came about, right? It must have been my dad who was, who was just mm-hmm. brainwashing me somehow, even though I can't remember that, yeah. you know, particularly how he did that, but I just remember that's all I wanted to do. So that was in the days in China when you know, China wasn't a very open society. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that China opened up when I was in my late... I mean, depending on how you count. I mean, they, when I was a teenager, right, and China started opening up. But yeah. it was all before that, right? So, I, you know, it's not like I knew a lot about other scientists. But somehow, Madame Curie has always been really famous in yeah. China. So we all knew about her. Okay. Uh, and she was the role model. At
1: what point did you leave uh, China then?
0: I left oh. after college, just like many of my peers. Okay. Uh, I came to the US for graduate school.
1: Okay, so in China then you did college, did you study physics too like your dad or
0: yeah so I majored in physics and um, but in fact, you know, that was a sort of a point that we debated, right? Mm-hmm. I even my dad was telling me that I should study biology. Right? Okay. Not that he knew much about biology, but he already saw that in physics, right, it was the field is so mature and there are certain things he might want to do, but it's just very hard to get there, like ener- high energy physics or something, right? It's become very competitive and selective, right? Mm-hmm. And so he always thought that biology is, you know, there, there's more room for development. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the debate was whether I should major in biology or uh, physics. Right? Okay. So this was also, I think, that the Chinese system has changed now. But here in the U.S., right, you have this liberal art education, right? So you don't even declare your majors in your first two years, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. But in China, it was very different. You apply to college to a certain department, and different departments actually have different admissions lines, right? So some departments are more competitive. So if you apply to a more competitive department, you just may not get to that uh, get into that university.
1: Yeah, I see. So yeah. then, it, you, but you set a
0: path. Exactly, so really you early committed uh, even before you start I see. college. Yeah, um, but for me it was sort of different, right? So for some reason, you know, we decided that I was gonna do biology, right? But, yeah. but then my dad, again, um, he gave me the advice of trying to get a physics training because again, this was back in my days, right? A long time ago that i think that the if you go to a biology department in the chinese education system there was a lot of sort of memorizing things yeah right? rather than there, there wasn't a lot of experimental training right so you don't really get to learn all these useful skills you might need uh, for mm-hmm. a research career right so he thought that studying physics at least you know you're you're forced into this intense mental exercise mm-hmm. and, and
1: i think that's a i i uh i took a biology degree cuz I thought I wanted to learn biology but you're exactly right that a lot of the training ends up being not research intensive it's more learning about things that have you know established at the moment but biology is also updating so exactly. rapidly yeah. that by the time like I got to grad school or decided yeah. I want to do it a lot of the things I'd been taught were either turned over or there was just yeah. new paradigms about how to think about yeah. it <laughs> so yeah,
0: yeah. that's but, actually very smart i think yeah yeah but then you know but here i think the you know as an undergraduate student, you can always go to a lab or something. Right? Sure, but yeah. But at least when I was in college, those were not the options that we had.
1: I see. So then what made you decide? where you set on that path?
0: Yeah. So okay. basically the decision was always that I was going to go into biology, right? Mm-hmm. Not that I knew anything about biology. Yeah, but <laughs> It was like someday. I just knew that this was my decision without knowing why. Right? Yeah, sure. Okay. But uh, so, so the choice was should I apply to a biology department directly or should I first apply for a physics department? Right? Okay. And again, at the time, I didn't know about the U.S. system was so open, right? Because I was projecting the, what I knew about the Chinese system into the U.S. So I thought that since I only learned physics, I couldn't possibly get into a biology department, even though people were telling me, say, oh, you know, in the U.S. things are different. So I decided to try a couple places. Right? Okay. But I applied to a whole bunch of physics departments because my GRE was done, uh, was taken in physics, right? If I took biology, I would get zero (laughs) because I didn't know anything.
1: (laughs) And then uh, where did you go then? Uh, Where did you accept uh, graduate school?
0: So I eventually went to Columbia Biology, right? Because I was astonished that they would even accept me, right? With a physics GRE test, (laughs) right? But I also got into Caltech physics, right? So that okay. was a hard decision, Okay, um, yeah. Because Caltech, you know, is very prestigious, and right. So I thought that either I would go to Caltech, but then maybe after a year or two, maybe switch biology, mm. or I should just go to Columbia directly.
1: What What was that decision like? How was that a hard one to make?
0: Um, it was I, it was hard. Uh, yeah. I, to be honest, I can't exactly remember. Yeah, how to make that. Yeah. yeah I think at least both are. Pretty you know, both had great names, right? At least in, mm-hmm. in China they, they both sounded fantastic. Yeah. And I figured that if I went to Colombia I might be able to save some time, right? Directly okay. go into biology rather than uh later switch.
1: Okay. And who did you work with in Colombia?
0: I work with Mumin Pu.
1: Okay. Did that get you into biology then? Did you did you yeah. finally get set? Like
0: I ended up in neuroscience. I have to say, it's pretty accidental, right? Because okay. the the department I got into is the Department of Biological Sciences, I believe that's what it's called. So it's a it's a it's not a medical school. Right? Columbia has a medical school, but I was in the biology department in the main campus. Mm-hmm. So that department has just a few people who are who are working on neuroscience. I think that now there are more, but back then they were just like three four people okay the rest they were working on a variety of different things it wasn't a huge department it was like 20 faculty right so when i went there i i think in my statement uh, when i applied to columbia i i remember i said that i wanted to work on molecular biology I didn't say anything about neuroscience because I didn't even know that neuroscience existed as a discipline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said molecular biology also not because I knew what molecular biology was all about. It's because, as a physics major, I you know I knew about atoms, I knew about molecules. At least it's something I knew what that word means. Yeah. Right. So I thought <laughs> it had something to do with just working with molecules. Right? Yeah. Um. So that's how I ended up in that department. Okay. So one of my college professors is Muming's friend, right? So he actually introduced me to to Muming even before I got there. Okay. And so so I didn't know anything, right? And also English, you know, I just got to this place where the language is whole new. Right? Yeah. And so I just thought that I would just first hang out in that lab, right? And then I liked the experiments there. They didn't even have a rotation requirement, right? Okay. So you can choose the rotation if you don't want to, you don't have to. Oh, that's nice. And so I just hung out in that lab and I started Getting into some experiments and I just stayed there.
1: Okay, great. What did they study then? So, this was molecular biology, but it was in it from a neuroscience perspective or? So,
0: it wasn't even molecular biology, right? It was a hardcore physiology, right? Oh, and I was what? just okay. telling you how clueless I was, right? I told yeah. people I wanted to do molecular biology and sure. ended up, and I was patching, uh, doing whole cell patch clamp recording mm-hmm. in cultured cells, um, neuromuscular junction. Okay. So, we would dissociate the spinal cord some neurons and, and some myocytes, right? So these are early development from the frog uh, Xenopus embryos, right? So we dissociate these cells and put them in culture. And so so we would patch on these muscle cells, right? Which would be postsynaptic, right? They have the ACH receptors. And then the spinal cord neurons, the motor neurons, they would release ACH, right? So sometimes in culture, they form a synapse. And so we can ask some Basic questions about synaptic transmissions, synaptic plasticity, yeah. uh, things like
1: that. So from there, that was then. Now you're now you're patching and doing some like neuroscience stuff. Did you continue on looking at physiology for a while, or I guess what was like the next step after like grad school? Did you keep studying so this? So
0: in graduate school, I worked on two things, right? One is synaptic plasticity, um, and in particular, heavy end plasticity, right? So I would, you know, stimulate the motor neuron and record the muscle saw and just sort of try to manipulate their activity, the timing. And, mm-hmm. and, and this and is time.
1: obviously what people think about is like the associative learning type. Exactly, that we're exactly. At to, yeah.
0: yeah, Yeah, but it was all done in culture, very reduced model yes. system. Yeah. But that's also, good, right,
1: for studying yeah. really mechanistically like how it works.
0: Exactly, yeah. But, but also I worked on synaptic uh, transmission, right, because at the time I think that people were starting to figure out the transmitter release, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sudov and all, the, all these sort of synaptofisons, synapto tagmen, all the synapto stuff yeah. <laughs> were, were figured out, right? So, 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 so the part of the lab also worked on that. So okay. those were the things that I worked on. But I think that uh, during the graduate school period, you know, I like I told you, right, I ended up in that lab because I, I liked the people there and I sort of like what I was doing, but I was really clueless, right? Mm-hmm. But it was during graduate school I realized that my long term interest was not so much cellular, it was more sort of systems level, how the yeah. circuit works, right? Okay. So I sort I was sort of exposed to that kind of study in graduate school from seminars, from summer courses. Um and so I figured that that's where I wanted to be, right? But I didn't regret anything I did in graduate school either because basic training, you know. Yeah. And so so I decided to basically switch to a new field as a postdoc.
1: Okay. Yeah. And where did you go after that? So now you wanted to you want to apply it to larger systems. And yeah, where did you go from
0: there? So I, uh, I went to uh, Rockefeller University. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked with uh, Clay Reed, um, but mm-hmm. it was um in Thorsten Liso's uh, big group.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. So
0: it was again, um, you know, at the time I thought that perhaps I should really try to take advantage of my own background, right? And so in graduate school, you know, I really my background in physics wasn't used that much because you work on culture cells, there was not a whole lot of complicated data analysis and stuff like that. And so, so as a postdoc, you know, especially when you're dealing with circuit and systems level, uh, then I thought that maybe computation plays a bigger role. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how I sort of designed my postdoc. right? I, I wanted to work on a combination of experiments and some computational analyses. Okay. So in fact, the initial arrangement was I would be a joint postdoc with Clay Reed and also Joseph Attick. Uh, so Joe Attick... Uh, Was uh, also a young faculty in Rockefeller, um, but he um, he's a theorist, right? So he was uh, thinking about efficient coding of natural scenes, right? Because in vision, you know, we use bars and gratings, but then the idea is that eventually, right? You want to figure out how do you see things in this complicated natural environment. So, so he was one of the pioneers looking at natural scene statistics and think about the visual receptive field properties, you know, why would you have these receptive field properties? Can you explain the receptive field properties given the natural scene statistics? Okay. And so I was really working with both. Initially, I thought that I would spend time half-half, but just the way it worked out, you know, experiments um, took more time. So I spent really most of the time in Clay's lab. Okay. Um, But my project was really... Partly computational. Okay. So really, you know, my postdoc project—the first project I did—was uh, a it was a very simple-minded idea. So Joseph Attic had the idea that perhaps we have the center-surround receptive field. Right. So, so we know in the retina and also in the LGN the receptive fields of the neurons have the center-surround antagonistic shape, mm-hmm. right? It's more or less circular. If an on-center, you would have off-surround, off-center, off on-surround. Um, so that's the spatial uh, aspect. Temporally, right, you tend to see this sort of biphasic response. right? So let's say you have an on-center saw. You give a flash of light, and you tend to see an increase in the firing rate uh, for tens of seconds, uh, milliseconds. And then afterwards, there's this sort of longer, maybe 100 or 200 milliseconds um, uh
1: like an undershoot? Half
0: undershoot, right. Uh, so this biphasic, right? So the idea there is that the spatial center surround is used to decorrelate the spatial correlation in natural scenes. Okay. And this biphasic temporal response is to decorrelate the temporal aspect of natural scenes, right? So the idea is, if you look at the natural scenes, right, the edges, that's where... The light intensity changes quickly right mm-hmm. they're actually rare right you know most of it is like a wall right or an yeah. object tend to have a smooth surface occasionally you have some edges right yeah what they were talking about is really the fact that the edges are relatively rare so if you just run them they pick two points that are close to each other right you can say i'm going to sample these two points these two points they all always have the same spatial distance right? yeah. and you can say statistically How much are they correlated? It turns out they're highly correlated. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of redundancy. Exactly. If this one is high, that one is likely to be high. Okay. It's only this high. This one is high. That one is low when they straddle an edge. Yeah. But edges are rare, right? So that means the neighboring points are highly correlated, right? So if you are just doing the point by point coding. You end up with a lot of redundancy. Yeah. Because you don't need to look at the next point. You already can predict a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea there is that the centers around receptive field is to decorrelate that, right? So you're emphasizing the edges.
1: You talked about efficiency. That just makes the system not have to encode every dot, every exactly. pixel, just deep yeah. like just somehow take that information and and make kind it more effective. Compress, right? compress it, sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. So so that will be the spatial aspect. Right? Mm. Temporally we also know that things don't change infinitely fast, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like you're in this room, the next moment you're still gonna be in this Good. room. Yeah, right? I'm not gonna <laughs> right. warp around. Right. So 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 the idea there is, you know, let's say you're looking at a single point, right? And this moment you your neuron has this response. The next moment very likely you're seeing the same thing. Yes. Yeah, not so... always. There are changes, right? Mm. But the changes are rare, right? So the idea there is that if you have a temporally biphasic response, you can decorrelate. You know, can cause this temporal decorrelation, and that makes it more efficient. So my postdoc project was really just to test that, right? So this is, you know, what I just said, is sort of intuitive level, right? Yeah. But the, the more quantitative theory is that natural scenes, if you look at the spatial power spectrum, the temporal power spectrum, the idea is that you want to design your visual system so that it de emphasizes the low frequency and emphasize the high frequency, so you have this bandpass filter. So quantitatively, where you end up it turns out that the most efficient signal is a white signal. And so that's what I tested, right? So when you you know when you play a natural scene movie and you're recording from say the LGN cells, you know, does the response actually look Kind of white, right? So that okay. was the a very simple idea. Right? Yeah. And then of course you know that that's too simple, right? And you have to okay. sort of measure the receptive field properties and see how much you can explain that. Yeah. From, based just on the linear spatial temporal filtering. Right? Okay.
1: So were you were these are these single units? Or? So
0: you know at the time, right? Really, um, I think the multi-electrode recording was developed, but it wasn't you know nearly as widespread as nowadays, right? So nowadays so many people use. Uh, Multilateral recording at the time it was fairly rare. Yeah, right? so we were doing some multilateral recording, but it was a large scale uh, yeah. We use this very Clunky really big one uh, that has seven channels very expensive yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's, but, but each channel can be moved independently okay. So we would drop those into the LGN and record from
1: and then move the them up cells. and down to find as many units as possible yeah. Okay, cool I'm just interested maybe then in the next step. Did you start your lab after that experience?
0: Yeah. So um, when I started my lab, right, so that's, you know, the other thing. (laughs) I was actually pretty clueless as to what I wanted to work on. Uh, I had had a relatively short postdoc. It was two and a half years um, before I had my own lab. But at the time, I thought that, uh, again, I wanted to take advantage of my training. So in graduate school, like I said, uh, a big part of what I did was Plasticity, synaptic plasticity, right? Mm-hmm. And so I figured that as um, in my own lab, right, I, w- I wanted to work on visual processing, uh, which you know computational stuff, but I also wanted to work on plasticity. Okay, so
1: now so, merging all of your skills right. together, cool.
0: Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, but it was more like strategic consideration, right? Because if I just wanted to work on visual processing, vision, you know, even back then was a very big field, yeah. a lot of people, right? And so I wanted to do something that I have something unique to contribute to yeah Uh, so that was the idea for working on those two things
1: okay what was um where did you go where did you set up your lab
0: Uh, in Berkeley in Berkeley
1: okay cool then what was your first couple of years as a professor like was that a challenge or was that a fun exciting kind of time in your life
0: I say it's both it's both fun It's also pretty stressful Okay. the fun part is that, you know, you set up the lab from scratch, right? Um and you just you build it from zero, right? rather than yeah. working in a in an existing lab and everything was already there. Right? Um but it was also stressful partly because um I had a slow start. My I had my first batch of students in my third year. Mm-hmm. Uh they did their rotations in my lab. When I was in my third year in Berkeley, okay, uh, and that's partly because at the time, Berkeley didn't have a large community of people doing systems neuroscience. Um, we had very strong molecular neuroscience, and so so that meant that we didn't we we were not very attractive to the people who were interested in systems neuroscience mm-hmm. back then. Now it's all very different. So now we really over the years we. Uh, we uh, really built up the program, but back then that was a problem
1: so then what was what was it like having students for the first time and was that was that a
0: it was tremendously fun? Yeah. E- exciting yeah
1: okay cool yeah now you're merging questions of plasticity related to vision what what did you what were you what were the questions at the time?
0: okay, so along the line of plasticity right I decided to work on adult plasticity partly because if you work want to work on development technically it's in vivo is, is trickier, right? Because you have to, you know, breed your animal and you know. It,
1: and I'm assuming was that a pretty big field at the time too? Trying to it figure out. It was
0: already a pretty big field. Right. For example, yeah. uh, back then, Carla Shah's lab was using ferrets to study development, right? But you know, she had a huge operation. Um, yeah. And for me to maintain a fair colony was pretty uh, prohibitive, right? I see. And so working on development, also, you have to record in younger animals. It's just everything's trickier. Yeah, okay. So I decided to work on adult plasticity. So one thing that happened at about that time was um, this finding with spike timing-dependent plasticity. Um, So, uh, you know, a bunch of papers came out 1997, Mm 1998. I started my lab in 97, right? But then STDP was already a big thing, right, in the cellar. And I I was following that because I always had an interest in cellular synaptic plasticity, right? okay. And so I figured that we'll, you know, it would be great if we can show that this, something like this could happen in vivo. So if you have a presynaptic cell and a postsynaptic cell, right? A synapse. So if the presynaptic cell fires a few milliseconds before the postsynaptic cell fires, right? So if this happens, this kind of relative timing happens repeatedly, say a few dozens of trials, then the synapse will be potentiated mm-hmm. right You basically see ltp but if the presynaptic cell fires after the postsynaptic cell fires again you know within tens of milliseconds then you get ltd yeah right and it turns out that there's a window right so the ltp the window is on the order of i don't know 20 milliseconds 40 milliseconds something like that yeah but if you're beyond that window let's say presynaptic cell fires 200 milliseconds before the postsynaptic cell fires outside of that window then nothing happens
1: yeah. Right. Were there just like a lot of questions at the time, at the point, like how, where does this happen? Uh, does this relate to behavior? What like, what were the ones that you so, wanted to so know? So when
0: this was discovered, right, initially, um, most of that was discovered in slices, right, in vitro, okay. right? But then there were some in vivo experiments, for example, in tadpoles or zebrafish or something, right? Um But the theorists really, you know, they they just jumped on it, right? There were a ton of papers. People were doing modeling and sort of theoretically say, if you have this very simple synaptic learning rule, what would that allow a neural network to do, right? turns Mm -hmm. out that neural networks can learn some very smart things, right? Just using this very simple synaptic learning rule, right? So, So at the time it was considered to be very important. The question is functionally, right? Can you demonstrate it? In vivo, right? So, my first couple of projects there were two things. One is that what I realized once I started recording in vivo is that things are never that neat, right? Because in slices, you say pre post, you pair, and then you, another trial pre post, you always give exactly the same timing. But when you're recording spectrains in vivo, nothing happens like that, mm-hmm. right? It's always messy, and right? So, my goal was to connect this, you know, in vitro reduced condition to the more in vivo kind of naturalistic situation right? Mm-hmm. and so one of the things we did actually my very first graduate student Ralph Frumke who's actually uh, now a faculty in NYU uh, so what he did was to do a really fun experiment right so first we wanted to figure out how would this learning rule work if you have a more complicated spike train right and so how do you make a company a spike train? You, you, you have three presynaptic, you have four postsynaptic. How do you make sense of the data? Right? Mm-hmm. So we figured as we were discussing this, we, we realized that one way to make sense of this data is that we build up the complexity one spike at a time. right? So this was totally, initially we were just like, oh, natural spike trains and like, wait a second, how do you make sense of the data? And so when that question was asked, and then it was like, you add one spike at a time. And I didn't even realize that until I said that, right? So this was yeah. one of those examples where the discussion, this bouncing ideas back and forth was really, you know, inspiring, right? Yeah. And so we said, hey, you know, that's the that's the right experiment to do, right? So what Rob did was he um, you know, first you establish his basic learning rules. Like one pre, one post synaptic spike, right? And then he says, Okay, what if I have two pre-synaptic spikes and one post-synaptic spike? And because you only have three spikes, right, you really you just have two parameters, right? Because in one single pair, the only parameter is the timing, right? Mm-hmm. There's that delta T. Yeah. But if you have three spikes, you have two delta T, right? This one and this one, yeah. right? But, you know, it's totally manageable. Two, and you can say delta T1, delta T2. You can vary both of them, and you can sweep this whole parameter, right? Yeah. And you can say, the question is, so one pair, you can say, given that timing, how much LTP do I predict based on this window? That OK. Right? And
1: is the idea that the two can maybe compound each other a little bit, exactly. right? So, so that our question it, yeah. is,
0: do they just act together? Mm-hmm. Or is there something else? Right? Yeah, right. And okay. so the answer that we got is that they don't just act together. So so let's say you had two pre and one post, right? Yeah. The first presynaptic spike is timing relative to this post spike plays a bigger role. OK. Right. And the second one is somehow, it also, you know, it depends on its contribution, depends on the timing. Mm -hmm. But you just have to, you can't just add the two together. You have to scale the second one by some factor. OK, right? so we made a very simple model and saying if you just kind of scale down the relative importance of the second spike, then you're fine.
1: OK, so that, then you can reduce it down to still just those two s-
0: Exactly. pre and post. Yeah. The
1: the third one, though, comes is a scale factor or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then it turns out that and then you say, well, what if you have one pre and two post? Right. OK. And it turns out it's the same thing. right? The first post-natic spike okay. has a more important role. The second one also contributes. But if you make a simple model, just scale its contribution down by a constant factor.
1: Was this, to, 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 to answer these questions again, was this lots of combinations of exactly. these, every com, you know, every yeah. permutation of that yeah. along the, OK.
0: Yeah. But, but since you're still pretty simple, right? Yeah. You're just adding one spec, right? The complexity is a little higher. but but it's not beyond something you can manage, right? Correct, yeah. Uh, and then you can build a simple model, right? Okay. So we basically build our model based on that, right? We said, okay, all you have to do is you just scale the second spike pair by some factor, uh, and it's between zero and one, right? Okay. And then let's just see how far we can go, right? Because once you start adding the third one, it gets more complicated. And we said, okay, let's just stick to this, right? And let's say now if we... Give a complex spectrum. You might have five pre, six posts, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then can you use a sim- simple scaling rule? Okay. And then how well you can predict? Okay. And it turns out that you can predict quite well. Really. <laughs> right. Okay. So that was basically our first big story. Um, cool. And so, so I think that you know, still I think that that paper. Among all my papers, first of all, because it's published first, right? Yeah. Uh, it's probably still the high, the most highly cited papers Okay. Uh, from my lab.
1: That's cool. So,
0: anyway, so, so we had that story and we had another story totally done in vivo, right? Trying to demonstrate the functionally you can also change the receptive field based on the sort of timing uh, rule, right? Okay. But with the two of them together, so they were worked out more or less at the same time. Right? Okay. And so I think it was very satisfying. So, that was really my first. I would say, a landmark in my career. Okay. Um, you know, I made one sort of concrete contribution to the field by the overarching theme is to sort of bring this more in vitro, kind of synaptic learning rule more to the in vivo okay. uh, setting. Right?
1: Awesome. I don't know if this will be jumping too far ahead, but I know that you also now, a lot of your work has been focusing on sleep.
0: You know, I really, my first, um, I started working on sleep Exactly five years ago, right okay. about this time of the year, I hired my first postdoc specifically to work on sleep. Okay. So what got me into that was, I guess the the trigger event uh, was I had a student, Mike Ward. So he came to my lab and he proposed to work on uh, neuromodulation, and actually, would again, it's sort of. You know, in my lab, very often we ended up not exactly where we started out, right? Mm-hmm. So, so he wanted to work on neuromodulation because of our interest in neuroplasticity, right? So a big part of my lab was working on plasticity, the example I just told you. Yeah. And so Mike said he wanted to work on how the cholinergic system modulates plasticity. And that work, that idea was inspired by some early work done by uh, Mike Mersonick at UCSF, right? So his lab has shown that critical period of auditory map plus DCT, right? If you keep presenting one tone, and then the in, in the early critical period, then the representation of that tone will be expanding, right, in the expense of the other tones. Uh, but then there's a critical period. But it turns out that in the adult, if you just do that, right, there's no map expansion. But if you pair the tone presentation, with the basal forebrain stimulation mm, then even in the adult you can induce this expansion right? okay yeah and so so the common belief is that in, in the basal forebrain the cholinergic input is important yeah? okay so in fact you know rob frumke right so he was my first student working at cdb and he he did a postdoc in uh oh. together with uh, mike mersnick okay and uh, and Chris Schreiner. And so in his own lab, he's actually, he, he does have some new stories about how the cochlear system oh, cool. um, modulates auditory plasticity, right? But anyway, so in my lab, Mike wanted to work on that, um, but but I I said, well, you know, maybe we don't really want to work on plasticity, right? Because Mike's lab has, uh, Mike Mersenek's lab has done all this beautiful work in the auditory system. So even if we demonstrate something in the visual system, it's unclear conceptually you know, how much further you can go, right? Because, Mm. yeah, it's nice that you demonstrate this in another modality. But if I had to guess, I would guess that in the auditory system, in the visual system, we should see something like that. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, it's neuromodulation, it's the cortex, and there should be a lot of shared principle, right? Yeah. So it wasn't clear to me if it was worth, you know, basically one whole PhD just to reproduce that in the visual system. Mm. And so I said, well, you know, the other thing is that, um, we can look at how it affects visual processing, right? Because I felt like plasticity has been really studied well, but you would think that the cholinergic system should modulate its processing as well. Okay. So why don't we look at that, right? Because that seemed to be less studied, right? Okay. So that was how he started out, and it was interesting that Mike actually wrote this uh, an right for predoctoral fellowship, uh, looking at how cholinergic basal forebrain stimulation could change say orientation tuning, receptive field size, you know, whether it's simple or complex cells. It was a whole yeah. set, right? In one, two, three. It was incredibly logical, right? He 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 wrote very well. And it was actually funded, right? <laughs> yeah. And so we so he started out doing that. And he was finding something, right? But then, you know, every cell, single unit recording, the data is noisy and one cell you see something, and the next cell you don't. And so he was getting, you know, among fifty cells and we were seeing a Bit of something, okay, right, and then one day he was giving his thesis committee meeting, right, and 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 since he has to put together this formal presentation, right, with me he was just like showing this figure and that figure, right, but but now he's putting together a, a formal talk, and he actually showed something that he never showed me individually, <laughs> which was how the how the uh, basal brain stimulation was changing the local field potential power spectrum. And he showed that. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, this is this is where the action is. You know, we were looking at something you have to average over 50 cells, 100 cells, you see a little bit of something yeah. and you're still worried about is that real or is it not, right? Mm. But this is like every single Every twice. cell. It really... happens right in front of your eyes, right? Mm. And so that's sort of what the first shock was, right? I okay. said, oh, maybe, you know, because we, we, the, the properties we were focusing on, first of all, was all about spatial receptive field, because in vision, receptive field is intrinsically sort of spatial property, right? So that was the first thing that got me thinking about the temporal aspect, because the power spectrum is all the temporal oscillation and stuff like that. Yeah. So Mike immediately switched direction. So instead of measuring the receptive fields using white noise, he started looking at the responses to natural scenes, right? And then so, what he showed was that with the basal forebrain stimulation, he saw two main things. One is that the correlation between neighboring cells is greatly reduced. And in fact, that's um, mirroring the effect that you see in the local field, right? Because okay. local field is really, you know, it's, it's the sum, the activity of population neurons, right? Mm-hmm. So, the fact that you see a reduction in the local field, low frequency activity suggests that the neurons are no longer terribly correlated with okay. the low frequency range. You're basically reducing a lot of the coherent sort of low frequency oscillation. In fact, it's very much related to what I was talking about today, right? So yeah. remember in the slowest sleep, right, you see this large amplitude local yeah. field sort of low frequency oscillation. So that's greatly reduced, yeah. Right? And so, so part of that is that the neurons are no longer kind of driven by these slow oscillations. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the other thing is that the neurons became much more reliably driven by the sensory stimuli, right? So that w- the way I think about that is that Without the cholinergic stimulation, there's a lot of intrinsic dynamics, right? Slow wave activity, just like when you're in slow wave sleep. Mm-hmm. But the moment that the cholinergic input comes in, you basically reduce the spontaneous slow oscillation. Mm-hmm. So then the sensory input really dominates the firing of the cells, mm-hmm. right? And is
1: this related to attentional um, mechanisms? I
0: very much think so. I so see. In fact, we sort of followed up on that, uh, and then later with optogenetics, just to activate the cholinergic neurons. Yeah, and, and basically the change in the firing. That we see very much mirror the uh, the effects that people see in attention. Okay. For example, we see an increase in the firing rate, people see that in attention. We see a reduced correlation between neurons, and people see that in attention. Actually, I think that Marlene Cohen discovered that when they train a monkey to do selective attention, right, the, the correlation between neurons is reduced. Right? Yes. Okay. And so so we see that with colonary neural activation. Okay. As well. So, yeah, so so basically that was like a, a moment, right? One got me thinking a lot about this sort of brain state change. Um, yeah. And then the other is, you know, once we realized that the even at the single neuron level, the effects that we saw is very much related to attention or something. Sure. That again sort of pushed us along this line of brain state.
1: Cool. Okay, yeah. So... Is the literature just that basal forebrain is also related to sleep and state changes in terms of going from awake to asleep? So is that kind of just the logical next kind of point? It wasn't
0: or... so logical, Yeah. right? So I would say that you know the fact that I started thinking about brain state was okay. was an important sort of preparation, right? But there's another reason, which is that I, I don't know, maybe midlife crisis—is <laughs> that how you call it? Right? <laughs> and also because I got into Hughes, right? And so. Okay. So there was a big change right in in how I could run my lab, right One of the things you know getting to Hughes is a fantastic thing, but it's also stressful okay. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you have more resources, so the expectation is higher yeah, right? could you just
1: say what that is just for some people listening like that don't know yeah, what so that it's Howard is Hughes
0: medical yeah. institute right? okay. So I, I I was selected uh, as an investigator in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. so they yeah. give you uh, pretty good support, uh, although very often not as much as people think <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but it's quite good, right, I should Sure. Complain. Um, but we get reviewed every five years. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's a pretty scary experience. Is it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> they're intense. <laughs> it's they're very intense, right? Uh, and so, so one of their unique philosophy, right? So this yeah. is that they, they say they support people, not project. I see. So this is very different from NIH grants, right? So NIH grants is basically evaluating your project. It right? mm-hmm. doesn't matter who you are. They evaluate this particular proposal. Okay. Right. But in Hughes, they say, we support you if we think you're good. Once you get the money, do something good. We don't care what you do, but you have to do something good. Mm-hmm. Because in five years, if we don't think you're doing something good, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, um, but the other mm-hmm. thing is that they, they actually say that they actually don't worry too much about your publication. In particular, they don't count your papers. Right? Because when we get reviewed, they ask you to submit five papers. You can only submit five. You can have published 30. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You choose five of them. You submit to them. They basically review it based on that. Right? Okay, yeah. But they want you to do something important. Right? And the other thing they say is that they say um, they evaluate you based on the subtraction or deletion test, right? So the question is, if they delete you from this field, how much would the field suffer? Really? <laughs> <laughs> So, how important right. are you in the in the field, right? <laughs> and so, so, so those are the things that sort of got me thinking, right? One is that I decided that if I wanted to switch a field, I had to do it then, Okay. Right? Yeah. Because if after they gave me Hughes, I still didn't switch, I would never switch, right? Because yeah. that was like the opportunity, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. no longer a slave of the NIH system because if you're dependent on NIH grants, it's very tough, right? because you have to continue with what you're doing you, you say i'm gonna on some work on sleep who's gonna give you a grant you have no track record right yeah. but here they say we think you have been good we give you the money you do whatever you want yeah right? so so that was a golden opportunity right and i figured that i was still young then right and if i didn't do it and if i waited for another 10 years. First of all, it's unclear if I would still have use. Secondly, I would be too old to change, right? So I figured if I had to change, that was the time. Yeah. Right? I had to make a decision. Right? Okay. The other thing was, I feel that that was also the time when a lot of people, so rodent vision became huge, right? So there were so many people who moved to vision in particular to use the rodent yeah. as a model system. So I figured that. As a result of that, right, I probably wouldn't pass the deletion test because there were so many people. Yeah, <laughs> right. Doing the same thing. <laughs> right. You know, I can be, I can try to be very good. Mm-hmm. And yet there are a lot of good people. Right? Yeah. And so, so that was, those were the two things that sort of got me thinking that I probably should... Look for an important problem
1: okay uh what what's been a challenge for understanding why sleep is important because it's uh it's a fundamental part of our existence, but I think the current state of affairs is like pretty mysterious, right?
0: yeah, so you know I was looking for an important problem. I yeah. was thinking about brain state right in fact, people in my lab were but they were working on brain state, right, but they were more thinking like attention arousal kind of thing right yeah um but then. But then even attention, you know, a lot of people study attention, top-down attention in primates, right? In fact, you know, my lab got into that direction as well in rodents. But but I was looking for something quite dramatically different. And then of course, when you think about arousal and attention, then sleep is the opposite to that, right? And I guess the other argument was, you know, we were talking about brain state. I was like, what's the first order brain state, right? You can be talking about saying, oh, quiet wakefulness versus active wakefulness. But that would, I would say that's second order. Mm-hmm. The first order, if you want to say brain state change, was the biggest change, mm-hmm. is between sleeping and waking up. Right? Yeah. And so those are the things that sort of got me thinking about sleep. And and then I looked around, I was reading some papers and uh, a book actually yeah. um, by Hobson. Uh, I think okay. it was written for the Scientific American series, it's very easy to understand. Hmm. I remember I was um, doing exercise in the gym every night when I was. Sitting there doing my bike thing. Really book the book up there. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I did that for a couple of months. Uh, and then after that, I made a decision to.
1: Okay. What do we know about how sleep would be uh, regulated by circuits in the brain uh, going from awake to asleep?
0: Yeah. So, so you know, um, so it turns out that sleep is a pretty mature field. I mean, there's a. There is a large group of people studying sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just initially I learned about the field just from reading reviews, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it seems like, you know, searching for neurons that can trigger sleep is a pretty tough challenge. Uh, There is this sort of... Evolution of the thinking, right, in the field. Uh, a long time ago, people thought that sleep is just a passive process, right? In fact, people think that, oh, if you just block off the temporal, sorry, the, the sensory inputs, then then your brain goes into this default of sleep. Right? Okay. Um. But then for a long time, people thought that, right? But then I guess uh, also just because behaviorally you're inactive, right? You're just out, right? But then I guess people started thinking when REM sleep was discovered and that was uh, in the early 50s people actually found rapid eye movement, and it turns out that this is the state when you're dreaming, right? So, And then all of a sudden, you realize that sleep, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Rather than this sort of passive, you're just like out, right? (laughs) Uh, So I think that that was one trigger when people started thinking differently. And then there are also these various uh, observations. For example, there's this very horrible disease called fatal familial insomnia. Mm -hmm. So it's caused by some prion disease, actually. Basically, it causes the degeneration of a pretty large part of the brain, including the thalamus. But one uh, consequence of that is that you lose the ability to sleep. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so, so usually people have this, you know, the onset is in, in their fifties. Um, but once you have a full blown onset, people usually die within a year or two. Yeah. Right? And so what I read is that, you know, a very dramatic demonstration that sleep is not a passive state is that for people who have that disease even anesthesia can't shut down their brain Hmm. right so what that suggests is that it's not like oh you just like gaba or something just shut down your brain and you're 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 asleep not like that right it turns out that there are these mechanisms that can allow you to sleep and so if you lose those right even anesthesia can't shut you down so interpretation is that maybe anesthesia is really kind of activating the mechanism that can allow you to sleep well once you lose that you can and so of course you know it turns out that there there's evidence all along right so even about 100 years ago less than 100 years ago but close to that um, mm. uh, this neurologist long Economo, so he already found that uh, people who have lesions in the anterior hypothalamus they have insomnia right so he already showed that you know you know, there, there are certain parts of the brain that are important for sleep. If you lose those, right, instead of saying, oh, lose some neurons, you lose activity, so you sleep more. Yeah. Turns out that's not the case, right? So there's a dissociation where the posterior hypothalamus is more important for wakefulness because if you have lesions there, you sleep too much. But if you have lesions in the anterior hypothalamus, then you can't sleep. So he already found that in human patients. And then uh, in the 1940s, uh, the uh, neuroanatomist, Nota He has done a whole bunch of lesion studies in the the rat, Mm -hmm. and he showed that if you make a cut, right, it requires very skillful sort of specific knife cuts in the brain. And he showed that uh, lesions in the anterior hypothalamus, again, reduces sleep, whereas lesions in the posterior hypothalamus causes more sleep, right? So that's kind of consistent with the human studies, right? But all of these are kind of suggesting that there are certain parts of the brain that are important for sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as I mentioned today in the talk, uh, right, people uh, in 1990s, people come up with this tool of using CFOs to look for sleep-active neurons. Right? Mm-hmm. People have identified various brain regions where there are these candidate cells that seem to be sleep-active.
1: Right, right yeah. You're, you're trying to put together this circuit of what are the cells during active states that are inhibiting or activating other brain regions and It looks like you guys at this point have like a pretty like really good starting point of like the brainstem and basal forebrain area work. And is is that where you see the lab going in the next couple of years?
0: Yeah, I think that in the next few years we'll be quite busy, right? You know, I think that what's tough in the past is that if you don't have a very good marker to mark just the sleep neurons, right? And then how do you trace the circuit? Because a lot of the tools that we have, you know, once you have a Cree line, it's easy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that now gotten some of the hard part over for a couple of brain regions, for example, the medulla, right? It turns out we just got lucky because we didn't need to search for markers. It's God, it was good enough. yeah. Uh, and then in the anterior hypothalamus, right, then we first we use this retrograde labeling. But now once we done the gene profiling, it turns out that again, right, I mean, I, I couldn't even believe our luck, right? It was, it was just the first round, we pull out a bunch of markers that seem to be highly expressed in this population, mm-hmm. and every one of them turned out that you just activate them, you can induce sleep. And so I think that once we have these Cree lines, we know which Cree lines to use, then the hopefully it will make the circuit tracing a little easier
1: cool um I, the final thing is if you have anything else you want to add or talk about i, yeah.
0: I think we covered covered right it <laughs> thank you that we all time right. well
1: yang thank you so much for talking with us today well, I really thank
0: appreciate you. it <laughs> this was fun thanks yeah
1: cool <laughs> thanks for listening Today's episode of Brain Matters was sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audiobooks with over 180,000 downloadable titles from all genres imaginable. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is providing a free 30-day trial to try out their service. If you would like to learn more about sleep, why not go to Audible and pick up the book Dreaming by J. Allen Hobson, the same author who helped Dr. Yang Dan get up to speed on the science of sleep. To pick up this book, or another one of your choice, head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters, and pick up your free 30-day trial. The music that you heard at the beginning of the show was by Death's Shroud.wmv and also by Persona La Ave. And the music that you're hearing right now is by Hong Kong Express. For more information about the guests on our program and about the science we talked about, check out our website, www.brainpodcast.com. You can also keep up with us on Facebook or at Brain Podcast on Twitter. And if you enjoyed this show, please leave us a review on iTunes or just send us a message through any one of our online portals. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate that you listen and support our show. We'll see you next time.